Okay, good morning. This is Richard Shu, host of Shu Untied. Uh, this morning, I'm very pleased and honored to have with me as my guest, a Chip Heath, who's a best-selling author of numerous books, including Decisive, Made to Stick, Switch, and his most recent book, Power of Moments. A Chip, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Chip, let me start by asking you, when, when you meet somebody that doesn't know who you are, I realize that's rare, uh, at a cocktail party, and people ask you, you know, what is it you do, or what is your area of focus, well, what is your answer? How do you characterize what you do and what you study? I generally say I teach at the business school at Stanford, and I write books with my brother. <laughs> so, that gets people off on the family connection. They're not so worried about the topics. Well, okay, but fair enough. Maybe that's a good intro. But but seriously, how, how do you describe, or how do you generally describe the area that you, you know, obviously research and write about? So I'm, I'm trained as a psychologist, and I started out my career thinking about teaching classes to MBA students on organizations and why they work and don't work. And mm-hmm. of course, decision making is a key topic there. You know, why why do people make good decisions in organizations sometimes, and why do we make bad decisions other times? We're talking about incentives and motivation. Um, but then I segue and say, you know, I've, I've spent the last few years writing about topics that are important to managers. So how to communicate effectively, which is made to stick, mm. how to create change when you need to change things, that's switch, mm. how to make better decisions, that's decisive. Mm. And then how do you create better experiences for your customers and your employees? And that's mm. that's the mm. Power of Moments mm. book. Well, how did you sort of, I mean, thematically, how did you sort of get into this area or, you know, tell me a little bit about the evolution of how you went from whatever, do what you, before you started writing these books and sort of became writing. famous? Uh, I, was a, I was an engineer as an undergrad at Texas uh-huh. A&M University, and then uh-huh. I came to graduate school at Stanford and studied psychology uh-huh. and social psychology. Kind of an unusual, pe- kind of unusual switch, isn't it? An unusual switch, but it was, it was, it was certainly better for me. I, I got into engineering because I wanted to do kind of design and human factors oh, issues, I right, and then I right. decided... By graduate school, I wanted uh, my psychology in a little more pure, uh, pure form. And so I got fascinated by the topic of decision-making. I got fascinated by the topic of why we were ineffective at communicating with others. Huh. And so when I started writing books, that's kind of the area I naturally gravitated I towards. And what was kind of the first idea that came to you that actually ended up being something that became a book? Like, what was the first idea? The first idea was the, kind of the quirkiest idea, and that was the observation that that certain ideas went out in the marketplace of ideas, even though they're completely bogus. Mm. And so, you know, you've, you've all heard, you only use 10% of your brain. Mm-hmm. Like, who ran that research study? You know, <laughs> if, that were, if that were true, then you could, you know, brain, brain trauma would be much less, <laughs> much less of an issue because you could lose a whole hemisphere and still preserve your ability to do Sudoku puzzles. And, and so that's a bogus idea, but it circulates, and it's been circulating for over 100 years, according to folklorists. So 100 years ago, they were saying this. And I think it circulates just because it's, it's surprising. It's unexpected. Uh-huh. You know, who, the brain's an important organ. We thought yeah, it was more yeah, important than yeah, that. Yeah. And, and so I started looking at that and saying, well, if these bogus ideas circulate, and by the way, the, the idea of the marketplace of ideas is fundamental to s- Supreme Court rulings in this country mm-hmm. and so our mm-hmm. law of free speech is based on the idea that eventually truth will win out oh, what right. happens if it doesn't win out and here's <laughs> here's a bogus idea and the four humors theory of disease lasted for over a millennium and it was causing doctors to do things that were systematically hurting their patients <laughs> and so if these bad ideas can survive then then what does that say about the, the free speech argument about the marketplace of ideas oh, right. but even more important how do, we, how do we take some of the principles of these bogus ideas and build them into true ideas and make true ideas more likely to stick mm. and so that's what I started thinking about and mm. teaching about at Stanford mm. 
Now, so tell me a little about how you ended up collaborating with your brother. I mean, that's sort of an interesting thing. Was he just happened to be doing the same thing, or how, was it something you talked him into? You talked each other into? How did that evolve? I kind of talked him into it. He's a brilliant writer, and so I wanted his 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 assistance on the book. And he had actually been in his own way working on making ideas stick. He had, as a as a college graduate, young college graduate during the dot com era. He created essentially Khan Academy, what Khan oh, Academy wow. is today. Uh-huh, yeah. and they had the best teachers in the country that they were going to stream over video to help students that didn't have such great teachers. But it turned out video technology at the time was not compressible in any form to, to flow over the Internet. And so right. it didn't, didn't survive as an Internet-based business, but it did survive as a, as a video textbook business. Uh, and so that's what he had been doing. And hmm. he had good intuitions and good insights about hmm. making ideas stick. Hmm. So how do you guys divide up the work now? Do you do you guys, is there certain things you do, certain things he does? Or how do you guys kind of work together? Basically, he could do it without me, but I couldn't do it without him. <laughs> he, he's, he's a great writer. And so when we started, we were brainstorming ideas together and we'd work on the outline. And I would find more of the research and, and probably more of the stories. But as time went on, uh, he, he got better at the research and and was equally good at stories and telling stories. And so I think at this point, he's, he's the star. <laughs> well, do you, have you guys worked on all four books together? Or? Yes. Yes, yeah. okay, okay. And do you, is it like, a, it is really a collaboration? I mean, it's not like, uh, I mean, it's, it's not just like uh, one person does all the work and the other person just loans their name on it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, we, everything that goes in there has been extensively vetted by, by both of us. And so mm-hmm. I think we, we naturally adopt this tendency of if somebody is really enthusiastic about the idea, the other person will be skeptical mm-hmm. about it for a while and ask hard questions mm-hmm. and force the person that's pushing the idea to push their thoughts as far as possible. So it's a really valuable collaboration. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think, as it turns out, that you are actually uh, more wired to be a psychologist than an engineer? I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> that you, I mean, what, what, what do you think about that? That's, that's no question. Um, so... <laughs> So the reason I got into engineering in the first place was because I thought that this was supposed to be a technical. I was supposed to be a technical guy, and and that's just you know people in science and that were good at science and math in high school. Right. That's the field that's that I went they into. Do. Yeah, yeah. But social science is definitely my my sweet spot. Huh. And did you realize that the instant you started, or take a little, take a little while to kind of figure that out? It, it wasn't when I started engineering. I was just doing the basics, and everybody understands you got to suffer through the basics. But then about my junior year in college, I, I found a an autobiography of one of the first cognitive scientists. And in reading it, it was just like I was coming home. This was all the stuff that I'd always been interested in, learning and memory and language and decision-making. And it was just a fascinating field. Do you think that the fact that you did have the engineering, though, still ends up being useful to you in some ways? Oh, yeah. I I still think like an engineer. When I teach organizational behavior, Mm -hmm. how organizations work and don't work, I think I'm essentially doing free body diagrams. (laughs) Because in engineering, you learn to isolate an element and think about all the forces on it. And that's that's the way I teach psychology. And oh, so when I've when I've told my students who are former engineers that, that that's right. yeah. they, they they all of a sudden click into, oh, oh this organization stuff is really interesting. Huh. Huh. Well, when you first came out with your first book, obviously it did very well. Um, were you surprised at how how I don't know revolutionary your ideas were? Were you what, what did you what was your reaction to the to how well it was received? I think we were stunned. Um, so we we had hoped that people would get excited about it, but. A wide range of people got excited about it, and so we had the people in the defense department assigning this to their their subordinates. We had vice president at one point, uh, Biden had it on his nightstand. We had tech firms <laughs> that picked it up. We had ministers that ministers and rabbis that were picking it up because they they were trying to get important ideas across to their congregants, hmm. and and surprisingly, even marketers picked it up. Hmm. And 
we thought that they would be the last audience that would because they they think about this stuff all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But even though they're intuitively good at some of these things, they don't necessarily have a framework for thinking about it and generating things mm-hmm. in situations where they get stuck. Mm-hmm. And so the framework the framework has been an important part of all of our books, and we work really hard to make it something that's usable for mm-hmm. people. We do a lot mm-hmm. of testing mm-hmm. beforehand. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you divide up your time now? Do you do, obviously, you're, you do writing, but do you also teach and you speak? I mean, do you, how do you kind of mix those activities now? I, I think it's, a, it's still a mix. I still have a day job at Stanford, and so I teach classes to, to MBA students and also PhD students who are working on their dissertations. And and I do a lot of speaking and a lot of writing. So what I've what I've kind of sacrificed on a little bit is doing the frontline journal articles, where you do research and collect data and you do t tests. And so at this point, I, I view myself as somebody who's reading our field and bringing that field to other people in a way that they can apply it. Hmm. Well, let's talk about your latest book, The Power of Moments. Um, you know, there's an interesting story in there about the uh, water aid and the story about how they, the tripping over the truth thing, yeah, which is yeah. how I actually found you. Because in my business now, where I, we do legal recruiting, one of the stories that was told actually at our, um, at our offsite retreat, the keynote speaker actually referenced that book and, and talked about how when we're, ta- we're advising people in their careers, rather than telling them, oh, you know, you should change jobs or you're unhappy, is to ask them a series of questions and see if they'll, you know, trip over the truth or come to that conclusion themselves. And uh, so I guess I want to ask you a little bit about the genesis of that and, you know, how did you find that story? Because it was obviously pretty interesting and maybe a little bit of how that, how that story came about. Yeah. So to step back for a moment, the broader idea of the power of moments is how do we create moments that matter to people? And so there are some moments in our life that stick out as memorable and, and important and insightful in ways that, that other moments aren't. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you, ask, if you ask college students years after they graduate, how many, what do you remember from college? About 40% of our memories come from the first six weeks of freshman year. Oh, interesting. Because those are the times when we're doing something new. We're out on our own for the first time. We go to a party for the first time. Nobody's waiting up for us when we come back. And so there are certain moments that matter more. And what's interesting is a lot of moments don't matter. Hmm. In fact, junior year is this kind of black hole of memory for most college (laughs) students. It's like nothing significant stands out. And then Hmm. you get to graduation, you remember that. And so we remember the beginnings and ends of sequences. We don't remember the middles. We remember mm. things that are emotional and not things that are, aren't emotional. Mm. And so junior year suffers because it's not the beginning or the end, and it's not particularly emotional unless we break up with a significant other. Mm. And, and so nothing happens. And so the trick is to say, what are the events that people remember? And we ask people for their favorite memories from their careers, from their family life, from their uh, from their life as consumers, and and we started seeing some consistencies. Hmm. And so one of the consistencies, before we get to your, your, your idea, which is about elevation, one of the consistencies is things that are intensely emotional, mm-hmm. very memorable. So mm-hmm. if you sit in a national park and see the beautiful scenery, or we remember the firework show with the sound and the, and the light. And so things that are intensely emotional, sensory, matter to us a lot and so a lot of moments are moments of elevation if you check into a double tree as a consumer you, you, what do you what do you remember about the double tree it's the chocolate chip cookie they hand you mm-hmm. when you when you check in hmm. and yet most hotels aren't handing out sweets when we check in most hotels aren't doing things i mean i don't understand why i would show up to a hotel and not get if you're in austin texas a beverage, a local beverage and a local snack that mm-hmm. lets you know you're in Austin, Texas. Yeah, right. And that ought to be different than the one from Chicago and the one from New Orleans. Mm. And so we sacrifice opportunities to create sensory experiences for others. But the one you're focusing in on and I think this is really important is moments of insight. Mm-hmm. And moments of insight are interesting because in consumer context, very often moments of insight are not moments of delight. 
Interesting. And we always talk about what you want to do for your consumers, what you want to do for your clients is delight them. Yes, yes. Well, very often the moments of insight that we have in our life are moments of, oh, man, I shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. And so so we may stretch ourselves in an athletic event. We stretch ourselves beyond where our current skill level is. And Mm -hmm. we think, "Uh uh-huh, I've I've learned something. Mm -hmm. It's one of those oh-no sensations. Mm -hmm. the the story that you're you're asking about is 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 offensive to some people because it it uses a a, a very visceral term for <laughs> human experience. It did. So there's there's a story in the insight chapter that's based on work that people have done on. Uh, it's called CLTS, community led total sanitation. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there are lots of parts of the world that still don't have closed systems for, for toilet, for human waste. Mm. And, and so the story that's about to play is, is not safe for family consumption. Uh, it uses a, <laughs> a very common uh, visceral term for, for human excrement. Yeah. But, but I'm going to say the word shit a yeah, lot. Yeah. And there's a reason for that because when groups were tackling this problem of trying to get villagers to stop doing open defecation, to stop doing shitting in the open, mm-hmm. they would go into a village, and what they found worked was to confront people with the situation that they were never critiqued by in, in explicit terms. And so the person from community-led total sanitation would walk into a village and start wandering around the village and looking at places filled with shit. And eventually the kids would start following him along, and he would start asking questions about, you know, so, so do people shit here a lot? Mm-hmm. What happens when the rain comes? Where does the shit wash? Mm-hmm. And the, the kids would show him, and, and, and so a crowd would kind of grow, and, and, and he was continually asking questions about, what about this shit? It looks like this is, this is kind of diarrhea. Does that happen a lot in this village? <laughs> and, and so people would be a- answering the questions, and, and eventually when he got a big enough crowd, he would start with the, the more difficult questions. Yeah. And so he would say, I noticed that there are a lot of flies here. Do, do flies often congregate in this area and the kids would be saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And they would say, do, do flies ever fly around and land on the food that you're eating? People would say, yeah. And then he would pluck a hair from his head and dip it in shit and walk over to uh, a bottle of water and swish it in the water and then say, would anybody be willing to drink this right now? <laughs> and people, of course, say, no, no, I wouldn't. And said, well, that's interesting. Uh, would you say that this hair is is thicker or thinner than a fly's leg? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they'd say, oh, it's thinner. And said, how many legs does a fly have? Well, six. Uh-huh. And and so the, the tension is building now because people are starting to realize, you know, we've got cross-contamination here. Right, right. And you'd point out the dogs that were were running around and did the dogs ever go in the house or did the dogs ever uh, ever lick the shit and the kids would say oh yeah that's yeah, gross it's so disgusting <laughs> when they do that and you say well do, do dogs ever kiss you after they <laughs> if they lick the shit and and so they were very conscious they would always choose in whatever language they were operating in the visceral term so i'm saying shit because that's the yeah, term in yeah, english that's yeah, the most visceral yeah. because you don't want to make this pretty you mm-hmm. don't want to make it mm-hmm. you don't want to make it unemotional mm-hmm. and so by upping the emotional ante by continually asking questions if 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 people would confront them and say so so what are you saying we should do mm-hmm. and say mm-hmm. oh i'm not saying anything i'm just here as an i'm i'm, I'm here as an observer i'm supposed mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. looking at villages mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. saying what they do and mm-hmm. and bringing that information back to the the central central repository and but then eventually people would start talking amongst themselves and saying, we're eating shit. Mm-hmm. We're eating each other's shit. You know, how can we do this? How right, can we do this? Right. And, and so it's, it's not something that people didn't realize was happening. It's not something that people didn't realize was not optimal. But just that 
forcing of the crisis of in the moment of confronting the fact that we have been eating each other's shit, mm-hmm. we've been eating each other's shit for years, mm-hmm. very often villages will change at mm-hmm. that moment. And that's so indeed what happened. That's exactly what, what they were fo- focusing on, is they were wanting to change practices that had been in existence for decades. Mm-hmm. And in, in the right intervention, in the right hour or two, you managed to do that. Now, did, how did you find that story? Did that story find you, or did you? How did you stumble onto that story? I mean, it, it seems like it fits your thesis perfectly, but I'm just curious. Uh, how, how did that story find you, or how did you find that story? The story we found first is is a lot more innocuous, but it's also an, an easier change to make. Um, the most popular course at Harvard, uh, according to my my sources, is not it's not taught in any of the departments. So it's not the the great human biology course. It's not the even maybe the life happiness course that we hear a lot about. Uh, the most popular course is actually in the commu- the counseling center, huh. and it's a course on on careers and and how to think about your your future. Right. And so one of the first exercises they do in that is they have people uh, list their goals for the next five or ten years, and these are Harvard students, so they've got wonderful lofty goals <laughs> right. of what they're going to do, and and they say you know I want to start a business, I want to start a nonprofit, I want to you know tackle this problem, uh, and and then what you ask them to do is to say okay, that's great. Um, Take out your calendars, whatever form they're in, paper or, yeah. or on, your, on your phone, right. and circle the times in the last two weeks that you went through that relate to this career that you just uh-huh. talked about uh-huh. in the future. Uh-huh. And so people start doing this exercise, and they realize there's basically no time during the last two weeks when I've been pursuing the goal that I just told somebody yeah, I really want to pursue for the next five or ten years. Yeah, interesting. And so that's another moment of tripping over the truth. And we use that phrase because... I think it has two components. One is it's it's very often a sudden realization because mm-hmm. you know there are situations where it dawns on us gradually over a long period of time this is not the right relationship mm-hmm. or this mm-hmm. is not the right career. Mm-hmm. But I think condensing that insight into a smaller, more compact interval matters. And and so there's that suddenness and there's the, also the the feeling of tripping is you, you, the bottom's fallen out mm-hmm. on you. You're, mm-hmm. you're unmoored. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, that visceral sensation is an important part of why why the, both these demonstrations work mm-hmm. is you just go, Oh oh no, I can't believe <laughs> I can't believe I've been doing the wrong thing. How do you get your ideas? How do they come to you? Do you get them in the shower in the morning? Do you I mean you're driving I mean tell me a little bit how these ideas kind of germinate. So so I think what Dan and I have been good at is we'll, we'll go into an area that we think we think we have some principles um, that would be useful to people, but then what we do is we just expose ourselves to lots of data, and hmm. so we collect lots of stories from people for this book about defining moments in their careers mm-hmm. or defining moments in their families, mm-hmm. and and we we stare at them and we read the research literature and we stare at the ideas some more and the, stare at the stories until we come up with something that we think accounts for you know eighty ninety percent of the variance. Hmm. And then we start testing it out with people and seeing if they can use it to develop their own ideas. So this notion of tripping over the truth, we had for a long time a notion that a lot of the insights that people talked about for their businesses were these oh-no mm-hmm. moments mm-hmm. where where they've realized, I've been doing things the wrong way, mm-hmm. or I've mm-hmm. wasted all this time mm-hmm. doing this, mm-hmm. and I should have been doing that. Or, you know, this piece of conventional wisdom in our industry is just not true. <laughs> and so there, there are all these insights that come suddenly mm-hmm. and very often in a, in a negative way at the start, but, but in the long run they're very positive mm-hmm. because they suggest ways of changing things for the future. 
Do you think, and I realize you might have to be a little bit immodest in answering this question, but do you think when you when you come up with these ideas and you see how well they're received and you know you, you talk about certain things that maybe everyone has missed, do you think that maybe you have like an insight into things that people don't see or overlook a lot? I mean, do you, do, I mean, obviously you come up with many of these ideas now, but I'm just curious, like, do you think like maybe you have a, some sort of intuitive sense about seeing things that maybe other a lot of people have missed. I'm not sure. I, I believe that I have an intuitive sense of anything. And, and, and what graduate school did very effectively for me because I was studying the flaws in people's decision making. I worked with one of the one of the, Amos Tversky, who with Danny Kahneman did a lot of the original research in uh-huh, this area. Uh-huh. And if he had survived, he would have shared the Nobel Prize with Danny Kahneman because. Kahneman won it for their joint work. Uh-huh. But that work fundamentally undermined my faith that I had much insight <laughs> about anything. Um, but but I think at the same time, I do have a lot of respect for data and mm-hmm. a lot of respect for empirical generalizations. Mm-hmm. And so by collecting a lot of these stories mm-hmm. and saying, you know, have I have I got something that explains why this happens? And this mm-hmm. is this is how a lot of conversations with Dan and I start. Mm-hmm. It's like we keep seeing this in the data, mm. but we don't have a story for saying mm-hmm. what that's true. Mm-hmm. And that forces us to mm-hmm. go into the research mm-hmm. literature or mm-hmm. forces us to think through and talk with people mm-hmm. about uh, hypotheses that we have. And that, that going back and forth between the data and the emerging theory is, is one of the hallmarks of what we do. Now, you mentioned earlier, you, you don't, I, I take it you're not, you said you're not a great writer. I assume that's not one of your favorite things. Of all the things that you do do, the research, the ideas, the teaching, speaking, writing, you know, what kind of, what's your favorite, what is your favorite of all the activities that you do that really excites you the most? Well, my favorite, unfortunately, and this is, this has been my struggle as an academic and as a, as a business book writer is I love starting things uh-huh, uh-huh. I love asking the initial question of uh-huh. you know how would we how would we think about luck uh-huh. you know when people say that somebody's lucky as a social scientist I don't believe in luck uh-huh, you know uh-huh. but I believe that there may be general principles that people who are lucky end up acting in different ways than the people that that don't do that and so I love starting with the question. I love collecting the first results. What I hate as an academic is doing the fourth study to convince the recalcitrant <laughs> reviewer that you know the first three studies were actually true. Uh, what I hate as a business book author is is doing the the, the final fact checking to make the story of the community-led sanitation to date it correctly and get the names right and spellings right and so it's, it's the detailed stuff that's it's always hard do you have a long list of ideas uh that you know that will in front of you for all your future ideas for books or do you just kind of go through one idea at a time and when the next idea hits you know who knows or do you just got a big list that you're ready to to, to do stuff on we've definitely got a list there there are a lot of things that we thought about for this book that didn't make it in the book at one point we were thinking about doing a book on everyday creativity and Mm. what does that look like Uh, because i think a lot of us are are forced to be creative on a day-to-day basis and is that creativity different than big Mm -hmm. creativity Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. big insights uh we've got a book that i'm still tempted to write at some point about uh, silos problems in organizations so Mm. they're Mm -hmm. often Mm -hmm. you know in every field in education i talk to firefighters that say yeah we have the the guys on the front line and they don't they don't interact well with the people back in corporate the, the mm-hmm, headquarters mm-hmm. they don't call it corporate headquarters um but every field the engineers in auto firms don't work well with the marketers or work with production people because they they're trained differently and raised differently and so i think there are there are lots of deep things that i would love to talk about and 
life only allows for so many to, to, to <laughs> pop to the top of the agenda. Well, how, does, how do you know when an idea – I mean, how do you decide that an idea is good enough to write a book? I mean, do you, or do you, do you consult with your editor? Is you and your brother make the decision? Or how, how, do, how, do you, how do you know when an idea is good enough that it can you know, actually merit another book? I think we're, we're pretty empirical on this. So, so like the Silos book is one that we had started, started writing um, or at least looking at an outline for the book. And we took it on the road. We took it to oh. organizations, and we said, you know, do you guys have these problems? And, you know, here are some solutions that we're thinking about, and, you know, does these, these resonate with you? And at that point, that, that idea wasn't ready. I um, see. So uh-huh. we weren't seeing enough demand or enough, huh. enough impact of the solutions huh. that we thought huh. we right. might be able to talk about. And, and so, so I think I, I write books like I do social science. It's like you get an idea and you test it, test yeah. it in yeah. the world, yeah. and sometimes it comes back positive and sometimes it comes back everything it's, it's like an entrepreneur testing testing a new app exactly um do you worry about the next book not being as good as the last book or do you worry about that at all or oh this is not going to be as good as that one i did or i i think we've already seen fluctuations so uh, so um our book on change was a, uh, a big success relative to heath brother standards uh, our book on decision making was a failure relative to heath brother standards and those came right after the other i see um and so, so I think when we came to this moments book, we we thought hard about you know what, what's worth what's worth investing four years of our lives yeah, or five years yeah, of our lives yeah. in, in doing. So safety, you, you have not decided what your next book's about yet. Not no. decided. Okay, no. still got a lot of different ideas. Well, of all the things, so I mean, do you have any other? What is it? Do you have any other career plans? I mean, other than or do you? You know, obviously you teach, you write, you speak. Um, do you see yourself ever doing anything else, or you're happy with with continuing with these ideas? I'm happy to continue with these ideas, but but I think the thing that I've gotten most pleasure from over the last uh, or the last seven or eight years is is based on. One of the first books that we did was on decision making, and I love going in, especially with entrepreneurs in the early stages of their their business, in helping them clarify their ideas so that they can get them across to others. I help them clarify their strategies so they can think about it internally and make mm-hmm. the wise decisions. And so I've gotten more and more over time excited about using just, you know, I've been teaching at business schools for 25 years, and so you learn a lot that you. It'd be nice if you could pass on to somebody else in a form that they would they would use it. Which I'm not sure that intro courses to MBA students is that form, but consulting one on one with an entrepreneur who's got an idea, very often we can make a lot of progress very fast. Do you see Do you see yourself ever you and your brother writing your own books, or I don't know if that, maybe that's already happened, but do you guys have, have you guys written anything separately? Um, oh, yeah, I've been encouraging Dan. I think is a world class writing talent, and. and and I think he could, he could be telling the kind of stories that Michael Lewis tells. Mm. And so, so I, I think the stories he writes with me tend to be these formula. You know, here's a here's a framework. Here's how you think about it. The case studies are very short. Mm-hmm. But Michael Lewis tells these brilliant yeah, long-term money yeah. ball stories. Yeah, and yeah. You get trajectory, and you get characters, and you got an arc, and they end up being movies. And so I, I've I've challenged Dan that his next book actually ought to be Something attached like to a movie oh. script. Yeah. Do you guys actually do you guys actually think very much alike, or do you actually think pretty differently? I think we think I think we think a lot alike. Um, we're fascinated by the same kind of things, and like I say, w- when we came to Made to Stick, what he had been doing in his career was basically trying to make ideas stick with professors and yeah, great professors. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. I could easily have have seen gotten excited about trading places with him if he had ever wanted to be a professor. I could be an entrepreneur and, <laughs> and do do the company that he ended up doing called Thinkwell. 
I take it being an entrepreneur, that's that's not one of your goals. I, I don't think I have I don't think I have the energy level to mm, be an entrepreneur because mm, mm. it's just it's just insa- these guys are insanely energetic mm, and, mm. and and focused. Um, so I, I like thinking slowly more than a typical entrepreneur. Mm, mm-hmm. But I certainly love the the gutsiness and the in the in the, they're they're their own scientist in a way because they're experimenting their way into into a good eye i take it that you get a lot of good feedback and ideas from your students i mean i assume teaching is a very integral part of a lot of your ideation and thinking so teaching teaching mba students is not always the source of that Mm. but but certainly teaching groups Mm. in organizations or teaching outside like we have great executive programs here and very often the executives MBA students have their own agenda because they're forming their careers and they're going skiing and making friendships and trying to find a significant other and all those kind of things. And oh, so right. they're, they're not the audience that's most hungry for how do we fix something <laughs> in our organization. And when you get a group of executives that come to Stanford mm. looking for a course, an education course, they are interested oh, in frameworks. They are interested sense. in how do, we, how do we do things and do better. Yeah. Is Chip your given name or is it a nickname? Uh, it's a nickname. Okay. What is your real name? How did you get the name Chip? Uh, that's a confidential information <laughs> uh, but the name chip came from my three sons there was a show oh, of course was, i remember that yeah, yeah. so yeah. yeah very good well chip it's been a fascinating conversation i really appreciate your taking the time i know you get a lot of these interview quests so i'm really honored that you agreed to be on my podcast thanks for having me this is richard shu and chip heath thanks